Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia on Air, the podcast from the Royal College of Anesthetists. My name is Shalini Patel and I'm an anesthetics registrar at Milton Keynes University Hospital. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Fiona Donald, the new president of the Royal College of Anesthetists, who is also a consultant anesthetist at Southmead Hospital in Bristol, where she's been working since being appointed in 1997. Fiona's main area of clinical and research interest is obstetric anesthesia, concentrating on improvements in safety through team training. She also has a long-standing commitment to teaching and training, having been chair of the board of the Bristol School of Anesthesia and an FRCA examiner. Welcome Fiona. Thank you very much. Today we are going to be discussing Fiona's new role as president, including a bit more about herself and the new college strategy. If we could start by talking about your role, or your new role as a new president of the Royal College of Anaesthetists, what or who inspired you to run for council, could I ask? Yes, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I think when I, when I look back at why I, why I ran for council, it's probably because having been involved in the exams and in education over the years, I sort of knew a little bit about how the college worked, but I didn't have a, you know, a full insight into everything that happened. And when I, I happened to be on the website reading the stuff about the elections and I thought it, it looked really interesting and as if you know you would be very involved in what was happening in the college if you became a member of council and that, that appealed to me. I had I knew a couple of people who had either been on council or were on council at the time and they were people that I really respected and admired for their sort of professional judgment and for their clinical skills and so I thought on that basis it was probably a good thing to go for. To be honest I didn't expect to be elected so it was quite a surprise when I was. (laughs) And what would you like to achieve during your time as president? So when you come in as president, obviously you're coming in as three for three years. Although at the moment, you know, you're, you're re-elected every year, but you you sort of think you're going to be there for three years. And during that time, you are part of a continuum of presidents. So you're you're really just taking the college forward in in the direction that it's been going already. But but each one of us, I'm sure, has our has our own ideas about things that we'd like to do specifically. For me. I think one of the there's several pressing things. One of them is about the workforce, because there's no doubt that we're really short of anaesthetists and we do need to increase those numbers. And of course, there's there's several ways of doing that, one of which is to have more training numbers for anaesthetists so that we can train more anaesthetists. And the other uh, one of the others is to retain people at the the end of their career so they don't leave anaesthesia before they have to. So those those are two areas that I'd like to concentrate on and we've been working on for the last um, year or so. And then I think also it's as you'll know, we've got we've got a new strategy coming out and within that is a commitment to get the membership very much more engaged and involved with the college so that we're really listening to what our membership are saying and then trying to act on what they say and incorporate that into how we we take the college forward and I really would like to see that come to fruition in my time as president that the membership feel much more engaged and involved with the college. And And then finally really it's about really embedding perioperative care within anaesthesia because I think we can all see from the backlog that's building up that we need to be able to prepare our patients 
for their operations and make sure they're in the best possible health for their operations and then that their their sort of their perioperative course is as smooth as possible if we're going to have any chance of of really getting past this backlog but also of providing care that's that's of the best standard we possibly can can I ask, have you been mentored throughout your career? And if so, who is it that's inspired you? So I haven't been officially mentored um, through my career. So I've never really had someone who, who was labelled as my mentor. But I've had people that, that I've um, looked up to. And they've generally been my colleagues that, that I work with, because those are the people who you see most often and, and who you see in their, their kind of best and worst moments and see how they react to those. And so I've really, um, there's two or three of my colleagues over the years who I think have demonstrated the the sort of professional and um, clinical values that I would really like to espouse. So, so that's how I've I've sort of seen that that mentoring aspect. Okay, that's great. And you've talked about the need previously for kind and compassionate leadership. What does this mean, and why is it so important? So, for me, what the reason that it's important is that if leaders are people who who don't demonstrate kindness and compassion then there there can be a, an atmosphere of fear within an organization and people don't feel safe within that organization and therefore they don't feel that they can speak up or act in a way so they might be acting in a way to protect themselves rather than in a way that might be best for the organization um, and in our case for the patients. So I think that every leader obviously has, you, you can't simply um, say that everything's wonderful all the time because patently it isn't. But I think in dealing with incidents that arise or problems that arise or difficulties between personnel or and whatever it is that happens with an organization, you can uh, react in a way that means that people feel that you're you're working to try and um, bring them along with you rather than trying to punish them for some supposed wrongdoing that might have happened. So that's my that's my sort of take on it. It's creating a, a, a safe and supportive culture that encourages people to produce their, their best work. Really. That's great. Now, I know you referred to the college's new strategy. Um, would you be able to tell us a bit more about that and how will members feel the difference? So in terms of our strategy, we are building a strategy which we're going to launch um, shortly, which will take us through the next five years. And the aim of that is that overall what it will do is allow us to provide more effective patient centred care. And to do that, we will have a well-trained and well-supported and valued workforce which sounds, could sound a bit trite, but what we're hoping is that within that strategy, we will set up a situation whereby the membership can feel that their views are more accurately represented within the college. So it's easier for them to make their views known to the college and they will be able to see that we're responding to the things that they've been asking us about. And we also want to continue to pursue excellence in the things that we do so that the, the membership can see that we're really setting very high standards for the practice that we want to see and, and that we're shaping the future 
of the, the specialty of anaesthesia. So hopefully that the, the membership will see those changes over the next five years. Thank you for that insight. Now, could I also ask, do you think it's important to volunteer within the specialty? And if so, how would you or what would you suggest anyone interested to do in order to get started? So I think I think it is important. I mean, certainly for the college, the, the volunteers are an extremely important part of doing the work that we do, because, of course, all nearly all the um, clinicians who work with the college are, are volunteers and it's the outputs of the college, which are very important for the specialty in terms of setting standards and um, training our workforce are, are very, very much involved um, with volunteers. So, so personally, I think it is important to volunteer and I think it's really rewarding to volunteer because you get a lot back from doing those, those roles as well. So if people want to get started and in getting involved with the college, there's lots of ways to do that. So I think quite a lot of departments will have um, decided to go for um, AXA accreditation. So that's the Anesthesia Clinical Services Accreditation Scheme. And they will have a, an AXA representative within the department who goes about getting them ready for um, that, that, um, that process. And then, when your department has been involved with AXA, you might feel that you want to then become involved with it, with it yourself for other hospitals. So you could become um, an AXA um, assessor for the college. So that's one way of, of getting involved. The other way is through our guidelines. We write um, the, the, the GPAS guidelines. We're always looking for people to help us with that area of things. There are the educational um, roles such as um, college tutor, um, but, at a, at a sort of entry level, the other way of, of um, becoming involved with the college, which I think is really helpful for people because it's a much, it's a sort of shorter involvement, is to become a, a clinical content leader for courses um, and events. And again, the college has ways of, of um, that you can volunteer to do those sorts of things. And that will give you a sort of taster of how the college works and getting involved with processes, which would then help you to um, feel more feel more closely involved with the college and then perhaps want to volunteer further with other areas. Brilliant, thank you. It sounds like we've got a lot of opportunities available. Um, now, juggling home life, your clinical work and your responsibilities as the new president must be really tricky at times. How do you prioritise and do you have any tips for the rest of us about prioritising time? Yes, so this this is sort of the question that I was dreading really because I'm extremely bad at prioritising um, and I tend to uh, work a little bit too much. So it, it is difficult. I mean, I, I work part time for the NHS now, so I don't spend as much time in the hospital as I used to. So that does give me more time to devote to um, being president. But as with all these sorts of roles, which don't really have a job description as such and encompass an awful lot of responsibilities, the work could be endless. So I think, uh, let's say I'm giving myself some advice because I definitely need advice about this. I think there are several things that one should do, which I don't necessarily do. So I think you should definitely um, have set aside time where you're not going to look at your emails or look at your phone. And um, if you're on holiday, 
you should try as far as possible to cut yourself off from your your work um, commitments so that you're not constantly uh, thinking about work. I mean, as we all know, when we go on holiday for the first day or so, you are still work, thinking about your work. But if you can <laughs> cut yourself off a bit, then it will give you a much better rest. So I think that's that is definitely something that people need to do. And the other thing I would say in terms of um, trying to manage the work life balance is um, you know, realising that you've got a, a huge team around you. Uh, in most jobs that you do, there are other people around who can help you with aspects of it. And it's it sometimes seems like more work to involve other people, but actually sharing the load and um, delegating can help you with that balance of, of the work and then your time away from work. So, so those those are the things that I would say are important. Is making really just making sure that you have periods where you are not working at all. <laughs> so, on the topic of well-being, it's never really been more important to look after our physical and mental health. What are your thoughts on well-being, and how would you like to see leaders encourage their people to look after both their physical and their mental health? I think this is this is very apposite, isn't it? Because I think everyone, certainly most people that I come across, are feeling pretty weary at the moment. It's been a, a long two years, and um, you know, just when we thought everything might be coming to an end, it sort of started again. And then the problems of um, sickness amongst the workforce mean that uh, we are having to work harder um, to keep the same amount of work going. So I think people's um, physical and mental health is suffering at the moment so i and if we are going to you know if we are going to manage the workload um in the future we're going to have to um, make sure that people are looked after so they can stay in work and stay healthy so i think i think it's a really difficult problem to know what to do because um you know there's a temptation just to provide lots of well-being resources and well-being courses and then think that you've done your job. But actually, those sorts of things on their own probably don't help that much. And the things, I'm sure you know this from, from, from your own um, hospital, the things that are really difficult to deal with when you're feeling run down and burnt out already are things that make it difficult for you to get to work, difficult for you to um, keep yourself you know, fed and hydrated while you're in work. Um, and just processes that are difficult to follow. So I think it's, you know, it's all about having um, parking, um, good facilities for cyclists. Um, I mean, ideally, brilliant public transport would be fantastic, wouldn't it? <laughs> but, you know, food available in the hospital, places to get, um, uh, you know, drinks in the hospital, making sure that you're able to get those regular breaks that should be built into a working day. Um, and really that the the leadership within an organisation appreciate that well-being has to be something that has practical applications. It can't just be um, a slogan or a, um, a campaign. It, it's got to have practical steps that actually do make people feel better. And making feel, people feel better is usually about making it easier for them to do the work that they want to do. Yeah, I agree. 
And our work can be extremely stressful, as you said, um, especially in the current climate. But with regards to you, how do you unwind and what do you enjoy doing in your spare time? So, as I said, I'm not very good. <laughs> I'm not very good at unwinding, but I do. There are there are things that I do. So I I spend a lot of time um in my in my time when I'm not working, walking and just you know, generally out and about in the countryside if I can. And and I I know that if I can get away for a day or half a day, and be out uh, walking in the Mendips or something, it just makes me feel an awful lot better. So that's that's one of the things I do. I, you know, like a lot of people, um, I have you know some hobbies. So I, I do um, play a musical instrument. So every now and again, I will do that just to relax myself. And I, you know, I, I do a bit of art, which again, um, I think it's not so much that they're completely relaxing those types of hobbies, but they they seem to use a different part of your brain, which which doesn't allow. It needs so much concentration that it doesn't allow work thoughts to come through. So both with the music and the art, I have to concentrate so much on those that uh, I therefore can't think about anything else. So th those are the sorts of things that I, I tend to do. Oh, sounds good. Um, I'd like to ask a bit more just about your work and your path to where you are now, if that's all right. Um, can you tell us a bit about your anaesthetic training career? Um, perhaps a bit about your career path, please. Yes, so I had. Um, I had a slightly unusual um, anaesthetic career path, although it wasn't that unusual at the time that I was training. So I, I didn't have um, a burning ambition for years to become an anaesthetist. In fact, I sort of fell into it accidentally when I just was looking for a job after after my first SHO job and found an, an anaesthetic job that, that looked good and thought, oh, well, I'll try that. So um, I was working, I worked in Western Supermare for a while, which is um, down near Bristol, and then um, got a, a job following on from that in Bristol itself. And then I um, just went through a series of SHO jobs uh, in around around Bristol and Oxford until I'd got my fellowship. And then, and then um, once I'd got my fellowship in those days, you, you sort of, most people sort of went abroad for a year um, after their fellowship. So um, I uh, went to Switzerland. And um, I went to Geneva to the hospital there. And I, uh, in fact, in the end, because I had at that point resigned from the NHS, I stayed there for a number of years and then came back to do my, in fact, to a senior registrar uh, rotation um, in Bristol. Um, and then after that, got my consultant job. So it was all a little bit, it was all a little bit haphazard, but um, it ended up being the right thing to do and was very rewarding. And I, I enjoyed it immensely, I have to say. And then, as you know, I've been a consultant in Bristol ever since. So I've been in, in Southmead Hospital uh, since 1997, doing obstetric anaesthesia there. And as I say, I um, have always been interested in education and training. And so I became college tutor, I think, three or four years after I took up my consultant post and uh, did that for about six years. Um, and at the same time, I was lead for, for obstetric anaesthesia in our in our hospital as well. And then um, I moved on from there through through a number of other educational roles and eventually, as, as you know, became a, an FRCA examiner. And th these are all roles that really just stemmed out of my interest in teaching. So while I was college tutor, I was doing a lot of practice with our exam candidates when they were preparing for exams. And that's what got me interested in being an examiner. And then, as I say, when I was an examiner, I became interested in the workings of the college in general and, and just seeing how things um, 
were done within the college and that was what prompted me to to apply to council um and and then um as they say the rest is history <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a very interesting career path um you mentioned your specialist interest is in obstetrics is there any particular reason why you decided to specialize in this area so I think I'm one of those people who, when you're going through, it was a bit like this in medical school as well, that every every rotation I did, I thought, oh, that's really good. I might do that. So mm -hmm. I, I, I always found it very difficult to decide what I might want to do. And when I was doing um, my anaesthetic training, I did sort of go through a lot of things and think, oh, yes, no, that's that looks really interesting. I could do that. And I, you know, I thought about um, doing intensive care and I thought about doing paediatric anaesthesia and I, I thought about all sorts of different areas and eventually the reason I chose obstetric anaesthesia was part it was partly because I thought looking forward as a consultant I thought you could probably you'd still get that mix of emergency and planned stuff that you would be involved with but you wouldn't necessarily have to be in all night doing it so you could do daytime emergency stuff in obstetrics so that was part of it the other part of it was that when I was doing I did a sort of um, I guess what you call a higher module now in obstetric anesthesia and I just found it really interesting to be involved at that level so when you're when you're an SHO or in, in the, when we had SHOs I was an SHO in, in obstetric anesthesia it's quite um, you know it can be difficult because you're you're you know you're doing a um, lot of night shifts and you're you're up a lot of the night because it's very busy and it's it's uh, high pressure stuff and it, it can be quite um mentally and physically draining but when i became when i did my higher module i just got to see a bit more of what it could be like to be in a position where you could be managing the service and trying to improve the service and really make things so much better and safer for everyone involved um you know not, not that i'm saying that the, the services i was in weren't great but you, you just get to see how you could make a contribution to those services and i thought that something quite circumscribed like obstetric anesthesia would be a good place to um to use those skills in the future and i and i really liked also the um, ethos of working in that team where you, you've got uh, the units I've worked in it has to be said were were great in that the, the midwives the obstetricians the neonatologists the whole team were all very cohesive and so you really felt as if the whole system was working towards supporting the mothers and their babies um, and obviously the, the wider family obviously um, so I, I and I really liked that feeling so it just gradually dawned on me that that was probably what I wanted to do. And when you're not doing obstetric anaesthesia are there any particular lists that you feel like you enjoy more than others and can I ask <laughs> what things are and why? So it's interesting isn't it I mean as you as you become a consultant you your your scope of practice necessarily narrows down a little bit but one a list that I've done until very recently um, from the beginning of my consultant career was uh, was uh, with one particular surgeon where we used to do um, he, he's a thyroid and parathyroid surgeon so I used to anaesthetize patients needing thyroidectomies and parathyroidectomies and I really enjoy that list and it's difficult to to pin down why I enjoy it so much I think it's partly because it's it's 
kind of the, it's interesting in that it's got that sort of endocrinology background and the the surgeon and I would chat during the during the um the operations and and I'd become more informed about uh, thyroid disease and parathyroid disease um and uh, it's partly because the team that worked in that theater were always really um you know a good team as i said before a cohesive team who got on well with each other and i like to think that's because of the atmosphere that was engendered by myself and the surgeon because we um you know we, we wanted to build that 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 ethos and then um also from the point of view of teaching and training that list was good because the vast majority of the patients were, were going to be intubated and so it was um, a good opportunity for me to help trainees in developing their skills in airway management um, and, and, and other aspects. And I also think that it's, it was one of the lists where the anaesthetic management had a very obvious direct effect on the on the outcome. Um, so I, for, all, for all those reasons, I really enjoyed that list. So could I ask, um, how do you see the specialty of anaesthesia changing in the next 10 to 20 years? How do you, and how do you think we'll address some of these challenges? So I think things definitely are going to change in the specialty of anaesthesia in the, over the next 10 to 20 years. It would be it would be unusual to think that it was going to stand still, but it is always difficult to, to look into the future. And, and we see that predictions often don't come true. I think it's fair to say that team anaesthesia is probably going to change um, and we will see the emergence of more of, of non-physician um, anaesthetists becoming a bigger part of the team. So anaesthesia associate numbers will probably grow over the next few years and they'll become an integral part of the team who deliver anaesthesia. We um, will probably also see expansion of the role of the anaesthetist into areas outside the operating theatre. Now, obviously, we're, we're already involved in those areas, but I think our, our involvement may, may become even greater in those parts of the patient's journey. So in order to do all of this, I think we are going to have to expand the anaesthesia workforce. And as I say, that won't be just doctors, that'll be non-physician anaesthetists as well as other members of our team, such as our, our anaesthetic assistants. And I think we'll work with um, other um, allied health professionals in other parts of the patient journey, such as the rehabilitation specialists and the prehabilitation specialists, the um, people looking after the frail and elderly patients, and we'll be much more engaged with those teams. I mean, if you look around the country, there are people already doing these things and they're already, uh, you know, parts or whole examples of, of these types of systems around the country, but I think they'll become much more widespread um, as we as we move into the next, as you say, 10 years or so. But I but as I say, I think one of the major ways in which we're, we're going to have to respond to this is by um, increasing the workforce um, in all those areas. So can I finally ask, what do you know now that you wish you'd have known as your younger self earlier in your training? Oh, interesting question again. Um, so there's lots of things, but I think the main well, the main things I would say to my younger self about training is that there are there are good days and there are bad days, and don't let the bad days get you down because you'll know if you enjoy anaesthesia and if you enjoy it, you should stick with it because the bad days will get fewer and fewer, and you'll end you know you will have more good days. I think, I mean, having said that. <laughs> 
<laughs> I um, so as an example in my career, I um, I did have you know times when I didn't think anaesthesia was for me, and I did even think about going into a, a different specialty at one point. So I you know I got to the point where I was going to give up anaesthetics and go and do something else. But fortunately, I, I saw the light, and I realised I did have more good days in anaesthesia than bad days, and I realised I did want to stay in it. I think one of the things that had sort of put me on that path of thinking it might not be right for me was that I, I did um, fail the first part of my um, FRCA exams when it was a three-part exam in those days and uh, that that always does um, you know makes you feel uh, like this may not be the specialty for you or it just may not be worth the effort but what I, what I would say to my younger self is it seems that seems like the worst thing in the world at the time and it seems like you could never get beyond that. But actually, when you when you look back, it becomes a much smaller part of your whole career, obviously. And it doesn't assume it, it assumes much less importance. And the benefits that you get from being in this specialty that you love really um, out, make that seem like something that, that you, you know, you should try and move beyond. And I, I think the other thing to remember is that your career is long. And so don't worry too much um, about when you're when you're a trainee, um, you think that you've got to get through everything as quickly as possible. And there's no doubt that there are more time pressures these days than there were when I was training. But even so, I think that you, you don't need to worry if you if you feel that you need a little bit more time to get the exams, um, because in the grand scheme of things, it, it will it will appear less important later on and you will find that the career in the end is so rewarding that you, know, you you will have more good days than bad days. So the other the other thing that I would definitely say to myself looking back on my career in anesthesia is that you should always listen to what your anesthetic assistant is saying to you because they're probably giving you the best advice you could possibly have. We all know that our biggest friends in the operating theatre are our anaesthetic assistants, and they often know a lot more about things than we do. So always listen to their advice. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Fiona. Thank you for listening to Anaesthesia On Air from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Also, If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. If there is a topic you'd like us to cover or you'd like to feature in the podcast, please email podcast at rcoa.ac.uk. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our program of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon.